men like my father cannot die. They are with me still, real in memory as they were in flesh, loving and beloved forever. How green was my valley then. you conscientious objectors and welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. I'm Spro and our destiny is to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Today we're going back, way back, farther back than Spro and Lee have ever gone before. Yes, I was dreading the prep for this episode because when old movies are bad, they are a real chore to watch. I mean, it depends on your definition of old. My students would say anything pre-2010 is old. My employees would say anything pre-2000. And I would say anything pre-1985. What we're here to talk about today is like relics. Definitely. I mean, to me, the 60s are old, but I can watch 60s movies no problem because I watched them when I was a kid. That was the decade that I wish I'd been born into. So the culture, the movies, the music and everything, I basked in it. Further back than that, kind of a hard sell. I blame a lot of factors for that, but ultimately I think it's the acting and we can get into it later, but just let me start by saying thank God for Stanislavski and Strasberg and Adler and Meisner and Hagen. They changed the profession for the better, but today's episode. Honestly, I'm a little intimidated for today's episode. And unlike the episodes where it's just you and I, Lee, I'm looking forward to listening and learning something today. Speaking of which, we've got some guests to welcome. We've got a lot of guests to welcome. We got the most amount of guests we've ever had on this show. Three gentlemen from two different podcasts. Let's start with the lone man, Kyle from I Know Movies and You Don't. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Good company to have embittered cinephiles just like myself. Uh, So (laughs) thanks for having me. Kyle, for our listeners who join us because they love movies, how would you describe your podcast, I Know Movies and You Don't? Well, I mean, my podcast is essentially a movie recommendation show. I take on a genre at a time. I developed it in 2020 when everybody else was bored as hell. And so I needed to fill my time. I watch movies. I like talking about movies. The show is about fostering, even though it's an eye in the title. It's facetious. It's a joke. Mostly my show is about fostering community and learning more, not taking the assumption that when you watch something that you truly understood it the first time, going back, revisiting, recontextualizing, looking up history, looking up the filmmakers in kind of a totality. And uh, I have a lot of friends who've come on the show uh you guys have been on the show i consider you now friends and you know it really is just about uh learning more and so it's it's for me to learn more mostly and so if, if people want to take the journey uh, you can jump in whenever uh, it's not a necessity to start from the beginning give a little background how did you get into breaking down movies Out of college, I started a blog and it was something to fill my time in the doldrums of uh, unemployment. And uh, throughout those years, I always wanted to do a YouTube or movie review show. And in 2017, I started a podcast with a friend. You know, that's where I learned a lot of the trade. I learned a lot of the tricks and the equipment. And from there, I wanted to do something more. I, I was always more interested in the history of cinema and understanding the 
them from their time period. And so then, you know, I started this new project and it was kind of to fill in the time, but it exploded into something I didn't anticipate. And I started in 2020 in June. First season was about cult films, you know, these favorites that people love. And now I'm in see, I'm in the middle of recording season nine. So we're on our way to 450 episodes. It's been three years. So it's uh it's been incredible and uh everyone who's been a part of it i just i i appreciate the hell out of you're the hardest working person i know in the podcast business you used to do three episodes a week and you scaled it back to your yes it's still insane to me it's it's a lot and actually you know it's because we were just going to refocus those efforts to giving content to patreon to try and uh, encourage some money out of the process you know because i'm selling out and you know i'm selling out my voice and my opinions in some way if people want to give me money they can but it's not a requirement and yet i have yet to refocus those efforts we're trying to get a hitchcock season going uh we're going to review 40 of his movies and so we're that process will hopefully start at the end of the summer. I'm looking forward to it. I know you invited Spro and I on if we had any interest, but uh, it's intimidating to come on your podcast, I know, but you're such a nice guy. Thank you for being here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Also joining us are the Worthy Boys, Ben and John from the Worthy Podcast. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Same questions, same order for our listeners who join us because they either love or hate the Academy Awards. How would you describe your podcast, Worthy? Worthy is what we call the best picture breakdown from past to present. So we started out in 1927. We're going in order. We do not have 450 episodes like Kyle, unfortunately. We have about a tenth of that, a little over 50 episodes. We're working on our next episode for the 42nd Academy Awards, I believe. So maybe 43rd, 40, if I remember I think correctly. We're 43. 43 now. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. So yeah, it's mainly focused on each individual Best Picture winner. We go over each category as well for each winner. And we like to focus on not just the Best Picture winner, but also the history, how film has changed, how the industry has changed. And it's been a blast. We're, we're excited. We've never really talked to anyone else about Oscars. We've been on some other show here and there, but it's not really been focused all about Oscars. And we're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Your podcast is kind of like Kyle's podcast meets our podcast. It's an incredibly deep dive on one film, but you are talking about the Academy Awards. So there is a little bit of a kinship between our show and yours, which is what drew me to yours. And I think this last episode, the one on Patton was my favorite. That and the, the Midnight Cowboy. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Midnight Cowboy was a lot of fun. That was an episode that I was looking forward to very much to recording. And it's funny because like the movie we're going to be talking about today, How Green Was My Valley, like that was a big one, at least for my journey into Best Picture winners and talking about the Oscars. So, you know, we're going back in time to like an era that like I really love and cherish. So I'm glad that we are taking the time to talk about 1940s American film. How did you all start with the Worthy Podcast? Who came up with the idea and everything? Me and John knew each other from college, and we had tried to do a podcast together, and we'd always talked about wanting to do a podcast together. So there's always that idea there that if I was to do a podcast, it would be with John. And we both loved Oscars and talking about the Academy Awards, watching it together like every year. So there's always that angle to it. And then, then the pandemic happened in 2020, and I needed something to do, some kind of passion project. And I decided to watch all the movies that won Best Picture. I'd always wanted to say like, hey, I've watched all those movies. And over that time, you know, talking with John, uh, just that idea was like, hey, we should uh, do this together. There's a lot of fun things, like its own 
little film school and it kind of just grew from there. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I think it really creates an interesting dynamic because Ben has watched every single film and I haven't really seen many of them, especially the first 40 or so films that we've kind of gone through. So he can kind of like see my new perspective and he can reanalyze film. So it does a good way of kind of like reanalyzing it from his perspective, how he's kind of changed his opinion after going through the whole list of films. And for me, it's my like first initial take of seeing something. So it's a really great way to kind of like break down these films and yeah, check out Worthy Podcast on all platforms. So I did the same thing. I watched all the best picture winners just to say that I did, I guess, because I'm a lover of the Academy Awards. I'm excited to listen to the Tom Jones episode (laughs) because I don't get that movie whatsoever. (laughs) It might be one of our funniest episodes ever, honestly. We were crying laughing that whole episode. (laughs) Oh my God. It was really great. Very absurd. And I don't think there's a meaning to it. So I think you're okay. (laughs) Okay. You two started from the beginning with Wings. Meanwhile, Lee and I are like just throwing darts at a board for episodes. But this will be your first experience retreading old ground because you guys already talked about the best picture winner of 1942. And any cinephile out there believes they know where we're going with this. But here at Spro and Lee, we have a motto where it's not necessarily what you want, but what you can stomach. So as we five gentlemen come together to give our honest thoughts on what the top movie should be, I want the worthy boys to open up the discussion. You could catch their full thoughts and breakdown on episode 17 of the Worthy Podcast but spoiler warning and for the sake of our two podcasts breaking bread together does the worthy podcast think how green was my valley was worthy of the best picture award this year walter pigeon has his most distinguished role as mr griffin the minister who sacrifices his great love for maureen o'hara as Anne horrid the welch girl whose beauty sets songs swelling in men's throats anna lee as the lovely and lovable Bronwyn. Donald Crisp as Mr. Morgan, the gentle tyrant of a father. John Loder as Ianto. Sarah Allgood as Mrs. Morgan. Barry Fitzgerald as Sepharatha. Patrick Knowles as Ivor. The world-famed Welsh singers. And the brilliant new young star, Master Roddy McDowell, whose inspired performance as Hugh will endear him to everyone. Well, there's a lot of elements to break down here. Obviously, you have the iconic John Ford, who's, you know, had such an incredible history in filmmaking and started out so far back with his early like Western pictures and kind of defined the Western genre. So he kind of brings that earnestness to it, the incredible cinematography that he brings to every film that he kind of makes. But really, I think where it comes down to this film in particular, How Green Was My Valley, is the heart and soul, really. You have this film that's about a, a struggling family. It's about the hometown. I think it's a very relatable film. You can kind of relate to it in a lot of different ways. You can relate to like the younger brother. You can relate to the father figure who's trying to like keep this family together or the mother who's, you know, the matriarch of this family who has a lot more power than I think a lot of people would realize looking at a film from 1942. It's a really interesting family dynamic. And not only is it a very beautiful film in terms of what it's about, the struggles of this town and its economics and the overall struggle that, you know, our main character, this young boy who is tragic 
tragically injured and has to kind of go through recovery of a very tragic, I believe it's like a spinal injury, if I remember correctly. But what a incredible film when it comes to like the emotion and the heart of kind of establishing this family. John Ford does such a great job of like switching genres of film. He'll go from a romance like moment where you have this really intimate connection between our two characters and it's very romantic to hinting at almost action scenes. It's it's not really action heavy at this film at all, but in terms of the way the film is orchestrated and the blocking of the scenes, the grand operatic like vision of the production design, it's a really stunning movie to look at. And then when you really start to break it down, you get to see kind of the characters behind it and the emotion. But I'll stop rambling. Ben, what do you think about this film? <laughs> I mean, we both agreed when we talked about it that this was worthy. I mean, John Ford's direction in this movie is incredible. I think the acting, Donald Crisp, who plays the father, really commands the screen and, and has this weight to the character and to every scene that he's in that is very, you know, fatherly and and but like in a good way, it's very like warm. It, you can respect him and understand where he's coming from. And that heart and soul that you mentioned too, John, like I think that's what's important to this movie, that it's a lot of family aspect to it. It feels very modern in many ways. It's very liberal. And there there's these topics that they go on, on religion, relationships that for 1941, it's pretty shocking that this movie was talking about it, especially in the way that it does. I thought this movie deserved to win Best Picture as well. Very much worthy. And, you know, we know why you're asking that question because of what it went up against that year at the Academy Awards. I love everything that's been said because How Green Was My Valley is an exquisite film. It's so beautifully shot. I can't think. I mean, there's this one shot when the sister is getting married in one of the most dreary wedding sequences I think I think I've seen in uh, in film history. And this gorgeous veil just is like drifting in the wind. There's something really poetic about John Ford. Him looking back at what is a very personal idea to him. Of about you know the, the idea of history, the the complicated feelings he has about history and family, and the romantic notions he has with them, and this movie unifies it all so wonderfully. He looks upon this coming of age as kind of when we grow up, we lose our innocence, we lose that sense of a past that is in rose-colored glasses. He's having that conversation. It's it, we're looking back at a past that's remembered, and it's more melancholic. It's more tragic than they articulate it in their head. And we, the audience, get to be immersed in that. They created this wonderful set in California to recreate the, this like Welsh background, and it's so thoroughly detailed. And you look at as this like almost Eden esque picture. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than watching a, a film about everything that unifies us as like the human project, you know. And that is family, that is community, and you see that things are being fractured and corrupt because of progress, because of industry. We'll get into it later on the rankings, but this is very high on my list of 1941. I am packing my belongings in the shawl my mother used to wear when she went to the market. And I am going from my valley. And this time, I shall never return. I am leaving behind me my 50 years of memory. Memory. Strange that the mind will forget so much of what only this moment is past, and yet hold clear and bright the memory of what happened years ago, of men and women long since dead. Yet who shall say what is real and what is not? Can I believe my friends all gone, when their voices are still a glory in my ears? No, and I will stand to say no and no again, for 
they remain a living truth within my mind. There is no fence nor hedge round time that is gone. You can go back and have what you like of it, if you can remember. So I can close my eyes on my valley as it is today, and it is gone, and I see it as it was when I was a boy. Green it was, and possessed of the plenty of the earth. In all Wales, there was none so beautiful. All right, so I think we could probably just go ahead and end the podcast now, since there are three of you and two of <laughs> Spro and I. I got to tell you, I haven't heard anybody ever say anything about how green was my valley until this conversation just now. <laughs> you know, it, it won five Oscars. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director for Ford, his third. And in 1990, it was inducted into the National Film Registry. But I think despite all those accolades and its consideration as a classic, how green has not endured as a topic of cinematic discourse. I know you guys like it, but why do you think it has not maintained the same level of staying power? It's very funny that you say that it's not, but then sometimes when I'm going through older movies and, and reading up about it, like it does come up quite often. So I don't know, like maybe just like the material that I'm looking at that'll come up, but I think that this movie also doesn't have that like staying power because of the fact that it went up against Citizen Kane as well. So it's like, it isn't as talked about or regarded because of what comes after it, but there is definitely a groundswell of people that know about this movie and talk about it. Even when I hear people talk about John Ford, I mean, he won an Oscar for it, and you hear about The Searchers, you hear about Stagecoach. It's just yeah. it's strange to me. No, I think you make a good point. Like, why isn't that not one of the top ones that comes up for John Ford? And the first one you said, The Searchers, I mean, that won no Oscars. So I don't think it was even nominated for any Oscars. It was not nominated for anything. Yeah. And Stagecoach was the other one you mentioned. He didn't win for that one. And he won for Grapes of Wrath, which, oof, there's another one that I do not. All right, we're getting off topic. <laughs> I think it's it's funny that you mentioned John Ford. If you look at his IMDb, top four films are The Quiet Man, Stagecoach, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. How the Searchers is not on that top four, I have no idea. But I really think if you look at those four films, you'll see the two iconic kind of Western films, which obviously John Ford is kind of, as I mentioned, so known for defining what that genre was and is even till today. But you look at these other films and Grapes of Wrath, you could maybe argue that's a melodrama, but I would argue that's just straight drama, a very dramatic film. And then you look at something like The Quiet Man, which is a romance melodrama. And I think they highlight that film because it's a little more iconic. You have John Wayne, who's so you know associated with John Ford as well. And it's a different role for John Wayne as well. So I think that kind of takes over the spot for what a lot of people think of, you know, John Ford's, you know, melodrama work, when even though he has a long, long history of films that go beyond the West. Western genre. So just focusing on melodrama, I think that's a big reason why people don't talk about this film. When we look at the huge year that this year was, you know, not many of the films that people talk about from this year are melodramas. In fact, I don't think any of them are. I don't think people really, I don't want to say they don't love that genre. It's a very loved and still, you know, shown in, in certain areas and certain streaming services today. But it's not something that people go back and talk about like, oh, you remember that good family drama? Like, I love that film where like the family was fighting and they're their, their town was crumbling. Like It's not like a fun look back at that film. And I also think the film, as much as I love it, it doesn't break new grounds in the way that some of these other films do and, and have done. And you know, you look at like films like Suspicion, obviously we mentioned Citizen Kane, they're doing something that's different and I think very unique for the time that a lot of viewers haven't seen. Uh, where 
how green was my value is taking what we've known from cinema. It's John Ford, you know, showing how good he is and how he can craft a film. And it's beautiful. It's stunning in like every detail. But I don't think it's pushing boundaries like you look at Citizen Kane does. This episode was a Spro suggestion. So I ended up actually liking How Green way more than I thought I would. But we are of the mind that there is room for improvement. So we're going to try to take the best picture away. It uh, We'll see. It sounds like it might actually be the first Spro and Lee take on the Academy episode where the Oscar stays. But we have to figure out which movie is more deserving of The Little Gold Man. But first, Spro, if you could give me an Oscar fun fact, brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor 2022. We take our coffee seriously. We're passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a mobile cafe and coffee retailer from Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise you a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. When they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon sticks. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to OddDogCoffee.com, where you can choose from three original roasts, cardamom and clove spike, the good boy blend of just the beans, and finally, my favorite, cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. And if you're in the Cleveland area, check out their online menu at OddDogCoffee.com and visit them at the Walter Stinson Community Park in University Heights, Ohio. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication. Comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies we watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. Three months prior to the award ceremony, tragedy had struck the United States as it was plunged into war after the December 7th, 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor. Tragedy also struck the Motion Picture Society when screwball comedic actress Carol Lombard was killed on January 16th, 1942 in a plane crash right after selling bonds for the war effort. Now, the Academy considered canceling the award ceremony, but decided instead to tone down the affair. Betty Davis wanted to just have, just sell tickets to the Academy. Academy Awards, and then anybody that wanted to come to the Oscars could, and she got shut down. But what they did say was black ties and formal dress were not allowed, and neither were searchlights allowed outside of the venue. Instead of a banquet, ceremony was to be called a dinner. There was no official host, but Bob Hope was named Master of Ceremonies. That's another thing where the Oscar website itself said the host was Bob Hope, and then there was three other websites that I was cross-referencing, and they were saying that there was no host this year. So facts get lost, I guess, in like 80 years. So we're here to talk about Best Picture, which was awarded, as we've said, to How Green Was My Valley. And we'll get into all that. But when people talk about this year, they only talk about one thing. Citizen Kane versus How Green Was My Valley. But at the time, most public attention was focused on another versus, the best actress race between sibling rivals Joan Fontaine and Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion and Olivia de Havilland for Hold Back the Dawn. 
Fontaine and her elder sister Olivia are the only siblings to have won lead acting Academy Awards. Olivia was the first to become an actress. When Fontaine tried to follow her lead, their mother, who favored Olivia, refused to let Joan use the family name. Subsequently, Fontaine had to invent a name, taking first Joan Burfield and later Joan Fontaine, taking her stepfather's surname. Biographer Charles Higgum records that the sisters had an uneasy relationship from early childhood when Olivia would rip up the clothes Joan had to wear as hand-me-downs, forcing Joan to sew them back together. A large part of the friction between the sisters stemmed from Fontaine's belief that Olivia was their mother's favorite child. The mother did refuse Joan to use the family name, so I think she had a pretty good case. De Havilland and Fontaine were both nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress this year in 1942, and Fontaine won her role in Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion. Higgum states that Fontaine felt guilty about winning, giving her lack of obsessive career drive. Higgum has described the events of the award ceremony, stating that as Fontaine stepped forward to collect her award, she pointedly rejected De Havilland's attempts to congratulate her, and that De Havilland was both offended and embarrassed by her behavior. Fontaine, however, tells a different story in her autobiography, explaining that she was paralyzed with surprise when she won the Academy Award and that de Havilland insisted that she get up to accept it. Olivia took the situation very graciously, Fontaine wrote. I was appalled that I'd won over my sister. There's rumor that when de Havilland won in 1946, she brushed past an outstretched hand of congratulations from Fontaine to pay her back. Contrary to press reports, the sisters continued their relationship after the 1940s. After Fontaine's separation from her husband in 52, de Havilland went to her apartment in New York often, and at least once spent Christmas together there. They were photographed laughing together at a party for Marlene Dietrich in 1967. Fontaine also visited de Havilland in Paris in 1969. Their sisters reportedly did not completely stop speaking to each other until 1975 after their mother's funeral, to which Joan, who was out of the country, was not invited. De Havilland claims she informed Fontaine, but Fontaine brushed her off, claiming she was too busy to attend. Higgum records that Fontaine had an estranged relationship with her own daughters as well, possibly because she discovered that they were secretly maintaining a relationship with Olivia. Which, phew, sibling rivalry at its finest. And then too many fun facts about this year's award. This was the first year in which documentaries were included. The first Oscar for a documentary was awarded to Churchill's Island. And John Ford was not at the event to accept his award for Best Director, one, because he was known to shun the Oscars, and two, because he had been made commander of the United States Navy Reserve and was head of the photographic unit of the Office of Strategic Services. He was president at Omaha Beach on D-Day and actually filmed the Japanese attack on Midway, suffering a wound in his left arm from a machine gun. I guess you could just say he got a gunshot wound to his arm, but it sounds pretty badass to say it was from a machine gun. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that we want to dispute? We offer stickers to anybody that sees errors. I mean, you've identified an error in our own podcast. You said that about the location, and I'm like, oh my God, we got the location wrong? I had to go back and listen. And yeah, I think we got the location wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's usually John's part. When, uh, <laughs> well, oh, you, you could have left kidding, that part I'm out. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> But I actually looked the next year is at the Coconut Grove. So maybe we were just looking ahead. All right. So if you're a longtime listener of Spro and Lee, you've heard plenty of guests bitch about the list of movies we give them as homework. So I don't presume to think that you watched everything on the list. I watched about half. I'd seen a couple and tried to add a couple more as well. I watched a decent amount of them. Uh, I've seen most of these movies. It was a matter of how much time could I utilize a rewatch. Almost 400 episodes under your belt, and I think you only talked about one movie from this year, which isn't even in the top five. I've talked about two from this year. Ooh. To be fair, 
we go by its modern title, The Devil and Daniel Webster. It's here now titled back then as All That Money Can Buy. Uh, so it did have a title change at one point. The movies for this year are 82 years old, and there's a great big handful of them for us to deep dive on, but we don't have to touch base on all of them if there is no need, no desire, no passion. So does any of you have anything to say about the honorable mentions? Dumbo. Am I going to get canceled if I say I still really like Dumbo? How about even if I go further and say that I swear to you and God, my favorite Disney song ever is When I See an Elephant Fly. It is the dopest fucking song. I think Dumbo is great. I think it's a great movie. It's got the one of the trippiest, uh, most experimental sequences in Disney history. But mostly because I think Walt wasn't even present when they were doing that. Like it was kind of like carte blanche, and so they were able to get away with a lot of things. And so the pink elephant sequence, I think, uh, in all of its psychedelia, it kind of propelled animation in a kind of different way. I mean, Dumbo did a lot of interesting things, and at the core, it's a darling. Story. I think the Worthy Boys talked about that it was the shitty animators that they got for Dumbo. Am it's I possible. Yeah. I listened to that same episode. I do not remember them talking about Dumbo. <laughs> I do not remember talking about Dumbo either. <laughs> Shitty animator. Uh, it, yeah, I was there was like a, there was an animator strike or something going on. I can edit all this oh, out. You know, okay. I found, <laughs> I found John. I found I found our note for because uh, it won best scoring of a musical picture. We wrote that Dumbo was considered a quote straight animation, meaning that it was a pretty straightforward story. So it was given to lesser animators, and the animators went on strike in the middle of production, demanding higher pay, which they eventually got. And Disney lost some of their top animators, though, as a result of the strike. So uh, maybe we said something along the lines that oh, they thought they were shitty animators, but they turned out to be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love Dumbo, and I felt like an outsider when I was a kid, so I really related to. Dumbo story and the ending just makes me so happy but honorable mention absolutely all right next movie Sullivan's Travels Sullivan's Travels is the omitted title this year this is one of the best screwball comedies ever made I don't know if it got a single nomination but it wasn't up for picture wasn't up for director and in the same year that Preston Sturges also did an incredible movie called The Lady Eve with Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck he created two masterful movies I would put them in my top 10 of 1941 both of them. And so Sullivan's Travels, you know, it just skewered this idea of Hollywood. It's a Hollywood satire. The idea that they understand and that they have to then walk a mile in the unfortunate shoes. And then in doing so, it starts to put a perspective around everything. And it's masterfully acted. It's wonderfully constructed. There's a sequence with a bus in a car chase sequence that almost makes the Marx Brothers look tame. It's an incredible movie. And I really do think it deserved more recognition the year it came out. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? They died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they know what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. That's no argument. 
If you panned to the public, you'd still be in the horsey. You think we're not? Look at Hopalong Castle. You look at them. We'd still be making keystone chases, bathing beauties, custard pie And a fortune. Fortune. Of course, I'm just a minor employee here, Mr. LeBrand. He's starting that one again. I wanted to make you something outstanding. Something you could be proud of. Something that would realize the potentialities of film as the sociological and artistic medium that it is. With a little sex in it. Something like... Something the... like Capra. I know. What's the matter with Capra? Look. You want to make your brother without that? Yes. Now, wait a minute. Then go ahead and make it. What you're getting, I can't afford to argue with you. That's a fine way to start a man out on a million-dollar production. You want it, you got it. I got to say this out loud. This was the first Preston Sturgis movie I'd ever watched. And it was my first Veronica Lake movie ever. So She was pregnant during the filming. I don't know if you can tell. So you can kind of tell in some sequences. I could not tell. In the spirit of the exploration of film, I did feel kind of enriched, but it was a pretty harmless watch. It was mildly entertaining. I do enjoy the message. Be grateful for your blessings and people need to have humor to withstand the tough times. But it didn't speak to me in the exact same way as it spoke to you. Spro, did you watch this one? No, thanks for calling me out. Uh, Ben, (laughs) did you watch this one? (laughs) No, thanks for calling me out, John. No, I did not watch this. <laughs> well, it's I guess so. all... Kyle really sold me. It sounded beautiful. I know. It's great. Guys. It's great. <laughs> I mean, I understand Lee's apprehension with it. It's screwball. It's a very particular comedy of its time. But I do think it's mocking nature. I mean, without getting more embittered or cynical, say, you know, 10 years later when Singing in the Rain comes out, where they're really giving Hollywood a rundown and a really good behind the scenes look at it absurdity. I think Sullivan's Travels was trying to take an interesting measured approach. So obviously it doesn't take it as far as even I would like it. The fact that they were even willing to let them, especially in the studio system, have a sense of humor of themselves at all. I do appreciate the the measures it took. All right. The next film is Ball of Fire. I do like the screwballs from this era. I do like Ball of Fire. I like Lady Eve. I like Sullivan's Travels. These are like peak of the screwball comedies. So I think this is actually the first film that I watched for this episode. And it was also at the same time that Lee was complaining about going to have to start watching films for this episode. And I was like, take Ball of Fire. I was like, it's about a group of professors working on a new encyclopedia. They take in a mouthy nightclub singer who is wanted by the police to bring down her mob boss lover. And I was like, the great thing about watching these old films is you get to see like where the where the newer films got their ideas from. Because if you keep the mouthy nightclub singer and you keep the mob ties, and instead of a group of professors, change that to a group of nuns, you got Sister Act. Like, if you enjoyed Sister Act, I think you will love Ball of Fire. It's the exact same premise. 100%. I agree with you, Spro. The next one is Meet John Doe. I am not a Frank Capra person. You know, I, I do. I, oh. I mean, I like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I do like It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra was kind of a an idealist. And, and an idealist in 1940s is very different than an idealist, say, you know, later on or in a different generation. And so I think some of his movies tend to show their age a bit. But I do like this one. I do like the messaging with this one. Again, we have Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, she's just a, a killer in it. Now, honestly, she's the most interesting character versus John Doe, Gary Cooper. But that's me, you know, I, I think appreciating Capra and his his idealism, his romanticism is a good thing. John Doe uh, doesn't great as some of his others do. I, I do like this movie. This is probably one of my higher ones. 
only because I love the message. Yeah. For anybody that doesn't know the movie, Barbara Stanwyck is getting laid off from a newspaper and she is told, write your last column and beat it. And so she does. And it's a letter from someone she makes up who says, fuck this, fuck capitalism. I'm going to jump off a building on Christmas because the world sucks for the little guy. And this little lie blows up. And then she has to find somebody to play this guy. And, you know, the world is all wrapped around his messaging and she has to write a speech for him. And she takes like something her father always said and she puts it in a speech for him and it becomes this impassioned. The movie just grabbed me from start to finish only because to me, it's time like the message was timeless. So, I, yeah, I love this movie. This goes hand in hand with the like the jaded aspects of media and the news at the time that people felt a little disengaged or a little at odds with it. But I agree with you, Spro. There is a modern sensibility here that a lot of people don't give these movies a lot of credit for. They're weaving around the censors. They're weaving around the Hayes Code, and they're trying to articulate something that is truthful to the audience and what what people were feeling at the time. This kind of the dispossessed, these John Doe's, and uh, I do like the movie quite a bit, and it is uh, it is a good one. And the lie snowballs all the way to a new political party. They don't believe the Republicans and Democrats are for them anymore, so they form a John Doe party. Like it's just. The news getting a bad rap and then people not feeling their politicians are working for them. I was like, Jesus, you could remake this today. Absolutely. All right. So all that money can buy or as it's known now. The Devil and Daniel Webster. Why was the title changed? Uh, it, it went through several cuts and they landed on a recut uh, with additional seven minutes of footage, I think, in the 50s. And it got renamed to The Devil and Daniel Webster because it made more sense. There is a lot of dated qualities to this movie, but what has not dated is Walter Houston's performance as the devil. And it's probably my favorite iteration of the devil that's ever been done. He is sensational in the movie. Also to compliment it is Bernard Herrmann's exquisite score. I think it won the Oscar that year. They had different categories for music back in the day. It won some Oscar. And this was an early, I think it was one of the first Bernard Herrmann scores. He would go on to be a collaborator with Alfred Hitchcock, most notably. And it is is an exquisite score the the portrayal of the devil is incredible whether or not you like the protagonist arguably you're not supposed to he's kind of an asshole um and the more he goes down the the pathway to his greed and denying of community but again this goes to what people were feeling post great depression or i mean arguably during great depression about to merge into world war ii the idea of community over individual is what mattered. And uh, Devil and Daniel Webster, all that money can buy, really hones in on that. So the only other title that Kyle has talked about on his podcast is High Sierra. I don't want this to be too situated you know, <laughs> on me, but I could also talk about High Sierra. It is one of those proto-noirs of its time, you know, delving into a genre that was being defined and it's kind of chiaroscuro lighting. It's uh, the morally complicated protagonist. It, what's interesting to note when you when you watch it is Ida Lupino is first credited over Humphrey Bogart, which was actually not surprising at the time. Humphrey Bogart was a B-movie actor from the 30s and High Sierra was his introduction as a kind of leading man, which would then give him in that same year, Maltese Falcon. I don't know. Babe and I kind of figured our best getaway was over the pass. Nobody ever expected us to cross the Sierras to get into L.A. Hmm. Suppose it would blow up a storm. If the pass got blocked up, hmm. then what? Yeah, that's right. 
Oh, by the way, I dropped in to see Big Mike yesterday. He wants to see you. All right, I'll take a look at the hotel tomorrow. I'll drive on in and see him. Oh, I almost forgot. Mendoza brought us a present. And Roy, I guess you're the engineer. Big Mike gave me the machine gun. Know how to work it? Fred doesn't, and neither does Babe. <laughs> That's a good one, that is. What's so funny? Does he know how to work it? Yeah. Hey, you know, that gun reminds me of one time nine or ten years ago. We were getting ready to do a job back in Iowa. And one of the guys got the shakes. Well, pretty soon we found out that this guy with the shakes had talked too much. And a bunch of coppers are waiting for us down at the bank. So we don't say nothing. And Lefty Jackson goes out and gets his gun. Comes back and sits down and holds it across his knee. The guy with the shakes is sitting right across the room from him. Pretty soon Lefty just touched the trigger a little. And the gun went... Like that. The rat fell out of his chair dead and we drove off and left him there. <laughs> yeah. The gun just went... This movie has a lot of history, a lot of people who would go on to make some really great films. It utilizes a massive set piece of the California mountains that is really sensational. Doing crane shots on cars. I mean, there's a lot of inventive technique going on or a lot of risky filmmaking. Raul Walsh was a great, efficient technician of a filmmaker. And High Sierra showcases him at a high operating procedure. It's it's a really good B-movie, you know, really good noir of its time. One of my favorites here, I actually do prefer Strawberry Blonde, but... It is pretty sensational at times. I would say, I don't know if it's a controversial opinion or not, but I would say this is Humphrey Bogart's best performance of the year. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to reflect on that so when we get to Maltese Falcon, because they, they are very different characters. And with Maltese, he has to have kind of that detective closed offness. While Roy in High Sierra is a very emotional and volatile character. And so he, he has a lot more to work with. All right, moving on. I'll be honest with you. I've seen a couple of the the next wave on this list. Not many of them are worth talking about. I got nothing. Caught in the draft. I was bored by. Uh Um, Hell's a Poppin' was the only one that I wanted to see because it was a comedy. It was like a screwball comedy, I think. It's a a weird Hollywood on Hollywood little chapter. Yeah, there's nothing substantial about it. Well, why don't we just shoot the Dumbo elephant in the room and go right into the Citizen Kane conversation. I think I liked this movie the second time I watched it. The first time, like, Lee, I had to get into the mindset of watching an old film. And then the second time, I was impressed with the technical aspects of the filmmaking. The fast cuts, the fades, the way the story moves. But still, the fascination with audiences and, I don't know, like, I... I don't give a shit. That's my opinion on Citizen Kane and the story of it, like, I don't care. And really, I never understood why the ending was so impactful and powerful in the public eye. Like, why? Who cares that the sled is named Rosebud? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's more so the significance of, like, this man's childhood, the lost childhood, wishing, I guess, he could maybe go back there or, like, reminiscing on that time. Or really, he's been so successful, he can still just only think about being a child. But I understand your kind of, like, separation. And I call Citizen Kane a mockumentary. And I think that's not really <laughs> common. But if you look at the history of mockumentaries, a lot of people don't even think they existed really to the 50s. But with how many talking heads there are, it's all about this like single person. It's not entirely a documentary. It's still very much a fiction film. But I think there's enough in there to reach out and call this a mockumentary. And you can even look at Orson Welles' history from 1938, where he did War of the Worlds. And he 
spoke on the radio as if it were basically real events happening live. And I think you could even look at that as being a signifier. Even the New York Film Academy says that is the first iteration of, quote, mockumentary art. So I think he has like a a passion for that sense of blending realism with fiction. And I think at the same time, that is kind of off-putting as well. And I think it was off-putting at the time for a lot of the audiences. And it's why the film kind of bombed when it came out. It's interesting. You brought up the War of the Worlds, which I think structurally informs the first like 20 minutes. Like you, you are watching these this newsreel of a person you don't particularly know. And it's interesting because the obsession Orson Welles had his entire career about the idea of truth or the elusiveness of truth, because if you could see it as a complimentary piece, you know, Citizen Kane is the first kind of iteration cinematically for him as this obsession that he would then end his career with a mockumentary of sorts, but it's more essayist than that with F for Fake. F for Fake shows you kind of what Citizen Kane is mostly about, and it's this idea that we cannot ever really know a person, and it's taking this kind of monolith of a character based off William Randolph Hearst, somebody who is embedded in media, politics, all of these things that are controlling most avenues of American life and breaking that idea down and breaking the person behind that down and coming to what I I think you're you're tapping into it, Spro, is this ambiguous sort of ending. Does it matter? Does Rosebud matter to him? Does Rosebud matter to us? Is it about his childhood? Is it about the things in his life? Is it about going back to that innocence? Honestly, the movie allows you to embed your own interpretation of it. And I think that this is why Citizen Kane is talked about most over other fil- all, all these other films is because that is so modern. Everything about this is experimental and new. And this is why it sustains. It's a very modern, cynical, jaded narrative that has no easy answers. And I really appreciate that about Citizen Kane. It's masterful in its innovations. It's masterful in its narrative and theme. And I think it's very generous to allow you to sit in a kind of ambiguity, which that would not take over in a feeling in cinema until maybe the 70s. I'm definitely a cynical person uh, when it comes to what's great, you know, what's not great. And I've always questioned, like, why is Citizen King great? And it's taken me a long time still to figure out, like, why it is great. I think that it is a very well-crafted movie. I think it has a lot of technical aspects that are obviously innovative. It was huge. And, and, and that's the important stuff that I love. So I think then the story aspect is then I start to question, like, why is it important? And as I've, like, gotten older and I've understood understood at least i've tried to understand orson wells as a filmmaker i think that he's very much let the art speak for itself and that the meaning you get out of it is the meaning you get out of it and there's nothing more that i'm trying to give you than what you're seeking and i say all that because that ending that the ambiguity of what is rosebud like what why is sled why this it's sort of just look at this guy who had everything in this world and he just cared about his sled but also the comedy of and it's all that's going to be burned away to nothing because you know as great as powerful as we try to make him to be he is nothing ashes to ashes dust to dust that's the human experience and i think that's what i love about the movie that it's not afraid just to be like why should you care i don't know why should you i love citizen kane and i think maybe hearing john and, and kyle just now like kind of reinvigorated that but 
I do also question, is it really the best film of all time? And it lost that. It lost, in, I think in 2012, they re-voted and Sight and Sound. Actually, I think they did another re-vote. Uh, Jean-Jean Demon uh, won that slot, which is uh, even more peculiar than uh, Citizen Kane. Who has seen John Dealman? I just want to know because I got to see it. Oh, I, I have. Okay. It is immensely quotidian. Like it is purposeful to just get immersed into the rhythms of this person's life. It's a hard ask. I, I do have to say it, it's a wonderful film if you can muster the patience. But uh, yeah, it, it is a difficult watch. Definitely. And it's a again, like I really enjoyed it, but it is so different compared to Citizen Kane. That's why the whole discourse around filmmaking and, and podcasts like what we're all doing is a lot of fun because we yeah. can have all of our opinions. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because what matters is that you're talking about it. And that's it for sure. I mean, it only got pushed down to number two. So being the number two film of all time is not necessarily something to... <laughs> if you ain't know. first, you're last. <laughs> exactly. I think, well, and I think Orson Welles might have agreed with that. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's pretty nice ballyhoo. But here's some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. Smile. Joseph Cotton, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Joseph Cotton, I think you're going to see a lot of him. Here's Ruth Warwick, whom I know you love. There's a lot of debate about, you know, if it's the best movie of all time. Obviously, that I think that shackles it. I think that that puts it into a different realm of conversation rather than us having a conversation of what truly it is. And it is a magnificent piece of cinema that really changed the game in a variety of ways and was kind of a big middle finger to the status quo of the studio system itself that he's going to utilize every advantage at his disposal and not give into what they demand and that i think you know this is where it solidifies in the the realm of legacy and history and why citizen kane is more important in legacy and impact than it is a film even though it's also a great film are we talking about the technical aspects of it or there, the that, story that, like uh, technical aspects yes definitely um his ambition and how they did these shots plan them within uh, a combination of effects if you notice he he stages the actors as though they are on stage which is, again this is his conversation with like the illusion of cinema itself like at one point they're all kind of gathered around in the, in the news lobby and a Kane Charles Foster Kane comes in from the back it's almost like he's entering the stage but how it's framed is up above and taken down uh, from Greg Tolan's vision I mean they removed boards in the floor they they shot in places that had uh, ceilings which is not common during the time technically yes but also narratively, when we think about the tools of screenwriters and how they manipulate what information they give, what are twists, like all of these things that have modernized aspects of screenwriting, 
he treats Charles Foster Kane as the subject and the whole narrative is a puzzle. And how do we put the pieces together? And whether those pieces amount to an actual picture, whether an item can define a legacy or whether a word can do so, like these are the questions that are at its disposal and it's asking lofty ideas. I mean, this is a grand theme of legacy ambition and power. And what does that leave us with? And so I do think it was inventive for its time for a variety of reasons. So Kyle just entered a new arena of film critique for me that I cannot play in. I'm hoping John or Ben can step up. I mean, I was waiting for uh, Kyle to make mention of the ceilings. This guy was shooting up at the ceiling, which was not (laughs) common. All the technical aspects of Citizen Kane were new and crazy and mind-blowing, and everyone was trying to rip that off and trying to accomplish that over the next you know, several years, decades. I mean, that's why it's like hard to deny the technical aspects of this movie being so great. And like, I can understand for why people want to talk about it and why it was so innovative and, and why it gets mentioned and, and why it's a travesty that it didn't win. Like, how could it not win all these awards? How could it not win Best Picture? Not only that, it was booed. Every time Citizen Kane was mentioned at the Academy Awards, it was booed. If you go to the Academy's website, there is them presenting an award. Best Director, I want to say it was. Yeah. And when Orson Welles' name comes up, somebody in the background shouts, woo! And I think probably because what you were just saying, Kyle, is that it was getting such hate that there was one person in the audience like, Can you imagine booing Greg Tolan's cinematography? Like when his name is announced, it's just unconscionable. Like, and it shows you that people were, again, this is why he's important, Orson Welles. And he's, he's a bastard at times, but he was showcasing that he could enter this arena and everyone was so gatekeeping about the studio, about who gets involved. And he was breaking all of their rules. I mean, I can't help but love that about the guy. I appreciate Wells because this is the earliest cinematic example I can name where the message so loudly portends the human reaction to the accumulation of power and influence. I've seen my fair share of Scorsese movies, as I'm sure you all have, and a good cross-section of them tell essentially that same tale. And I think the reason for that is because human propensity towards rising and falling will always be morbidly interesting and relevant. It's our past, it's our present, and it's our future. It's Ozymandias, it's Gatsby, and it was Charles Foster Kane. But what's really interesting is watching all these 1941 movies in one fell swoop, as we've done, and seeing just how unique Citizen Kane is, how much it stands apart in nearly every way. And what's more, no single movie from this year, not that they're trying to necessarily, but none of them manage to convey the existential unease that Kane achieves. All right. Well, Citizen Kane wasn't the only movie in the bunch. There was another movie called Blossoms in the Dust. Gross. <laughs> you don't like Dusty Blossoms? Or I what? really dislike this movie, but we, I'll let somebody else talk if they got opinions. Like I was saying to Lee, kind of getting a whole nother worldly view of like what people were thinking back in the days. It's not all good. Sometimes it's very bad of like what the general consensus was in 1941. But it was very interesting to me to dive into a story about adoption. And it's an interesting idea because this is this is all real. This all it's it's based off of a real person, and there's really nothing to it. It's really thin. It's melodramatic. 
I mean, I couldn't help, and this is this shows you that I oftentimes can have a demented sense of humor. When her sister goes in the beginning of the film and shoots herself, I couldn't help but laugh. I thought that was an overreaction, uh, and they didn't necessarily sell me on the the ramifications of what it's like to be without the rights as an orphan. I think taking it to that level of suicide uh, without uh, articulating it well was a bit of a misstep, and I feel most of the melodrama is a bit of a misstep in Blossoms of the Dust. I don't know how to react to that. I did not laugh when she <laughs> shot herself. I felt really bad for her. Um, but I don't know what kind of, like, I don't, I've never had to run into that kind of judgment in my life where, like, you know, I would be shunned or somebody wouldn't love me or couldn't accept me because of something in my background. Yeah. I, that would be sad, I think. I think so. I agree with you. I think it should be sad. <laughs> <laughs> The subject of the film, Edna Gladney, is a name that more people should know. She spent her life being a voice for unwed mothers and orphan children. She personally oversaw north of 10,000 adoptions. So it's kind of gross to think how 80 years later, the best we can do is a story about Nike executives. But I agree with everything that was said. And I just wanted to also say that a lot of Blossoms in the Dust is fictional. Edna did not have a son who died tragically. In fact, she was incapable of having kids altogether. Nor did she even have an adopted sister who shot herself after finding out she was illegitimately conceived. So both these plot events are kind of manipulative and cheap in Edna's story. And as Kyle pointed out, they aren't even emotionally effective, so... And one other uh, interesting thing about this is as Greer Garson and Walter Pigeon, who, you know, we have Walter Pigeon and How Green Is My Valley, but they would both go on to star in the next year's Best Picture winner, Mrs. Miniver. I know, John, you could probably say some riveting stuff about Mrs. Miniver. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's very interesting to see that that pair sticks through for another year and then gets their recognition a year later. Is this the only film on our nominated list that's in color? Yeah, I believe so. Which is interesting that it's as dull as it is, and it's the only <laughs> film in color. All right, the next one, which could be where Quantum Leap got its idea from, is Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which to me was a surprising nomination for Best Picture. I liked it. To me, it was very simple. It was very funny. It was a very easy movie to take in. Why it was nominated was, was kind of surprising to me. Why are you surprised that it was nominated? I think maybe I've been so inundated by the Academy Awards only nominating dramas that I forget at a time that comedies were allowed in for mm -hmm. Best Picture. Look at what just won this past year, everything ever all at once. I think everyone's like, oh, it's so innovative, so crazy. It's like, you know, the Oscars have been doing wacky and wild for a while. They just haven't done one in a long time. But I think even with everything everywhere all at once, like the technical aspects of it, I'm not a huge fan of everything everywhere all at once, but the technical aspects you cannot deny, kind of like Citizen Kane. Just like Kane, Citizen right? Kane. <laughs> and this one, to me, it just felt pedestrian, even for like 1940s. Like the script itself could have been a play. The scenes, the settings, very long. Funny very you mentioned that. It's, it is a play. <laughs> Boom. There you go. I didn't even need to research that. But so, yeah. So everything just seemed kind of very simply put. I can't point to one thing and here comes Mr. Jordan and be like, masterful. Put it up on the pillars of the Dolby. You know, I agree with you. I don't think there's anything like, uh, you know, it's it's not blowing you away in any sort of sense in a 
sense of scripting we'd seen uh, even even up to this point ima- fantasy driven ideas of the afterlife even up to this point this is different this is interesting of the kind of religious tone that some of the movies were taking on that god or some kind of power because it, they, they don't really say god here but there is kind of a bureaucratic efficiency up here in the heavens that they operate by rules and principles and strictures but that they can when given the opportunity make our lives better and i think that that's something that was yearning and the populace at this time that it's an idea of utilizing power for its betterment that obviously it's not the heavens but it's people in power and how do they embrace their responsibility and capability and here we have a hero in a kind of a knucklehead boxer who is given a different sort of identity and is live living a life of some rich man and starts to unfold that apparatus starts to give back starts to pay people better starts to not be so ingrained in the profiteering model but in the avenue of what can I do to better the things around me and so I agree with you I don't think on like a technical level there is something that is astounding here but I think that they really sell it it's a really charming film that it wins you over in its display of its morals and its purpose and I I think a lot of people shine to that and I don't blame them because even watching it, I'm a cynical guy. I'm an embittered guy. I sit here in 2023 looking at Here Comes Mr. Jordan and I'm charmed by it. Right into the thick of a murder. Is it going on right now? Yes. Right here in this house? Mm-hmm. Who's doing it? His wife and the man she's in love with. They're drowning him in the bathtub. Holy cow. No, Joe Pendleton, Robert Montgomery to you, wants no part of that setup. That is, he thinks he doesn't, until he sees a girl named Betty. I didn't come here so much to thank you as to... because I had to see you again. But that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And here comes Max Corkle, Joe's lifetime friend and ex-manager, who thinks Joe cracked up in his plane. Joe is having a hard time convincing him he's wrong. Listen. Ah, what's the matter with your eyes, you big sap? I'm not Farnsworth. I'm Joe Pendleton. You're Joe. You're nuts, Mr. Farnsworth. Wait a minute, I'll prove it to you. You always hit that note sour. Joe, it's you, Joe. Robert Montgomery, a fellow named Joe you'll be tickled to know. Claude Rains as genial Mr. Jordan. Evelyn Keyes, a beauty named Betty. James Gleason, loyal Max Corkle. Rita Johnson, Edward Everett Horton, John Emery, and Donald McBride. Oh, yeah. Let me be clear. Like, charming is a good word. I like this film. I want to make that clear. I just don't know why the nomination. I get that. But then there's One Foot in Heaven and Blossoms of the Dust. So I I think this one could remain. Isn't it funny how the Oscars every year, it's, why is this movie there? Why is this movie not there? I think it's just an age-old debate and no one's ever satisfied. And that they're like, okay, that that makes sense in my head that these 10, these five would be nominated. So I I love the debate will just always be there. Well, I've never liked the 10 for Best Picture. 
you know, as a betting man on the Oscars, like you look at it and you go, mm, six of these have no shot in hell. So I think that's kind of where I'm landing on when here comes Mr. Jordan. I'm with you uh, to a degree. I think it's smarter if instead of having a fixed amount of slots to fulfill for Best Picture nominations, just keep it fluid. Uh, and there's rarely 10 movies in the same year that deserve the honor of a nomination. And sometimes there's barely five. So I like that the Academy's kind of been doing 10 or nine or eight nominees. I wouldn't mind if they were willing to even do seven, six or back to five if the situation merits it. But all that said, I thought, here comes Mr. George and deserved its nomination. I got a lot of enjoyment out of watching this movie. And if I'd been a voting member of the Academy in the early 40s, I might have cast my vote for this one. I was laughing. The performances were engaging. I even thought the ending was good, despite it being easy to telegraph. It was satisfying. I wanted that happy ending. So I'm kind of convinced you could show this movie to like a precocious eight-year-old and they would genuinely enjoy themselves. And I don't think there are many movies from 1941 that you could say that about. Does it have the same insights as a movie like Citizen Kane or Little Foxes, which we're going to talk about? No, but it's fun. And as Kyle again pointed out, sometimes that's the itch that we need scratched. All right, move it on. Hold back the dawn. I didn't get to see this one. You know, I know it for uh, Olivia de Havilland's performance in it and the whole competition between her and Joan Fontaine. Hold Back the Dawn has been on my list. It just did not happen for this recording. But I I will just give shouts to Olivia de Havilland because she is great in many other aspects and many other roles. She does steal the show in this movie. I had never seen it before. It's directed by Mitchell Lyson, but what's more interesting is that it's written by the power duo of Hollywood and uh, the screenplay sense, Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. And actually, I think it is a really strong idea of a screenplay. And you can see, you know, Billy Wilder having immigrated to the United States from Germany to get out of the scenario that he could see brewing. He was kind of reflecting on the process of immigration and being stuck between an identity that you desire and the identity that they kind of administer onto you. You know, it was funny. I think I read some of you guys' notes about Charles Boyer being boring, and I do agree. Uh, you can see Charles Boyer being uh, the uh, the influence, one of the influences for Pepe Le Pew, uh, that gives it kind of a share of cartoonishness to his portrayal. But this movie's Paulette Godard's and Olivia de Havilland's. You know, these two women caught between this con artist, this guy who is trying to make opportunity for himself at the expense of other people. And it's really about the women and how they change this man from being kind of uh, duplicitous and opportunistic and uh, change him for a more complicated and more earnest sort of moral character. This movie is known for turning Billy Wilder into a director because apparently Charles Boyer wouldn't read his lines or say some of the lines that uh, Billy Wilder came up for him. And so he said, well, if all it takes is to become a director to make them do so, I will. So maybe we can thank Boyer and his uh, stubbornness and we can uh, appreciate Hold Back the Dawn for giving us Billy Wilder and launching him into being one of the finest filmmakers I think ever. From that perspective, I'll be grateful that this movie exists because I don't want a world without Billy Wilder, but Hold Back the Dawn is boring. It's far too cautious with its subject matter, which, you know, I get it. That was a detriment to a lot of films in the Hayes Code era, but whew, not for me. Not for me. Sorry. 
Well, I think because of the Oscar fun fact, let's skip down to suspicion and talk about the Hitchcock film that was and Joan Fontaine's performance in it. Joan Fontaine versus De Havilland for her role in Hold Back the Dawn. Suspicion I really enjoyed, you know, another behind the scenes aspect with like John Fontaine and again, the Oscars the year before she's in Rebecca, another Hitchcock movie. She's nominated for Best Actress, doesn't win. I always love talking about it. there's always those politics going around. You wonder what those backdoor conversations were like, which was, hey, she was around last year. She's really good. And now she's going against her sister. I know we all love Olivia. And don't forget, like Gone with the Wind was just a few years before where she lost for Best Supporting Actress for that role as well. So it's all these politics, these shaking hands and kissing babies type of thing behind the scenes that definitely I think leads to sometimes wins and and definitely something with this one because of the sister rivalry and also just the movie itself is really great and a little like just loony like I know Hitchcock movies are these out there, you know, very cynical. They're thrillers, but sometimes these get so wacky. And this one was wacky. Cary Grant is something else <laughs> in this movie. Just his approach to the character, not really knowing like what is going on, like what is the truth, like who are you supposed to believe is like that fun mystery that just made this movie so interesting. And you know, it's not Hitchcock's best movie. You know, there's a ton of other ones, but this one is still very much in his vein. It's very, you know, it's um. I was about to say Black Mirror, but I'm like, no, we can go for like Twilight Zone as the reference <laughs> for this movie, just in terms of like just the vein that it's in and and what it fulfills. So I very much love this movie and this performance from Joan Fontaine. I thought this movie was worthy of being there. Uh, and this so is coming off of 1940s Rebecca, which won Best Picture, which also starred Joan Fontaine. So she's just incredible in Rebecca. If you like Suspicion, I think Rebecca is an even better film. And it's very similar. But Suspicion is, is also, it's a great time. I think it could be pretty slow for most people, especially people that are looking for like an engaging thriller where, you know, the main character might get killed by her husband the entire movie. It's not, you know... Cary Grant's not holding a knife behind his back constantly throughout this movie. It's way more subtle and slow and builds up over time. And I think this movie's really interesting and it's really relatable still today because when you get into a relationship, you kind of question the partner. Obviously, you're not questioning the person that's going to kill you in your sleep or anything like that. But you, there's an understanding of like getting to know someone, especially when you first like move in with someone. You're like trying to understand what that's like. And I think Suspicion does a really great job of kind of breaking that down. And, and showing what it's like, especially from a female's point of view, where especially in the 40s, where you have like such a dominated man's world and a woman is always like the secondhand kind of citizen when it comes to especially filmmaking and films. So I think Fontaine is amazing. She just deserves to be here. She's just an incredible performer. And it's just so highlighted in this film. She has like some of the best reactions, I think, in uh, any of the films from this year. But yeah, I think Ben is exactly right. I love the way that Hitchcock is like slowly developing his style and he mixes this like extreme tension with absurdity and it's just it's a great time there was something strange about Johnny A's girl I knew it long before I married him anything you could put your finger on and yet you were always conscious of it conscious of something vague restless frightening there was our first meeting on the hilltop now what do you think I'm gonna do kill you Nothing less than murder can justify such a violent self-defense. It's so easy to think. I knew Johnny loved me as desperately as I loved him. And yet I remember now that even his reassurances seemed almost sinister. I want nothing but to spend the rest of my life with you. And if you were to die first, I... If I were to die first... 
From that moment on, my life was filled with fear. Not of Johnny, I loved him too much to really be afraid. But the fear of not knowing, the agony of waiting, of wondering how it would happen, of waking in the middle of the night, shaking with terror, and finding myself praying that whatever it was, it would be done quickly and with mercy. These are the facts. The evidence before the crime. I wanted you to know, in case I met a violent end. The only thing that makes this not one of the the superlative masterpieces on Hitchcock's Ovra is for something that he even complained about himself. It's based off of a book or a play, a book, I believe. And in the book, it's left open-ended as to what actually happens. And instead, the studio demanded they could not have Cary Grant be a villain or even implied to be a villain. It had to be sort of, it's, it's an incongruent and neat wrap-up to a film that articulates something far more complicated. And so when you know the original ending when you know that she's supposed to just drink the glass of milk and then it ends there it leaves an open question as to whether she she is paranoid whether her imagination has got the best of her whether she can trust but it ultimately comes down to this impossibility of knowing and trusting it might not be the undeniable heights of say like rear window or strangers on a train or god even lifeboat but there's something interesting going on with suspicion and i do really like thinking about it I like the first watch. The first watch, I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, I thought, you know, I was more clever than the film. I was like, well, obviously, this is what's going to happen. And then it didn't happen. And then I was like, well, this is what's going to happen. And so it was always one step in front of me. And I think that is what kept me very intrigued with Rear Window, with Vertigo, Psycho, all the other Hitchcocks, Rebecca, those ones I can watch over and over again and just immerse myself in them. Where Suspicion, I really liked the first time. I wonder how I'll feel about it if I watch it a handful more times. Well, I, I probably won't watch this one ever again. There aren't too many Hitchcock movies that I reject, but this one grated on my nerves. I, I can't even pinpoint why, but I'm glad you all seem to like it. I found it tiresome. All right. So moving on, let's do Sergeant York. On Spro and Lee, we see a lot of biopics every single year, kind of over them. This one is the telling of Alvin York, a good old boy from the Tennessee Lowlands who done straightened himself out, sobered up, and done became a real American hero. I like this movie, but I got really weary of the G-Shucks Tennessee bullshit talk, and I'd like to know if that accent was authentic or Hollywood's vague impression. <laughs> I do believe Alvin York was very much like that. Really? Yeah. You know, obviously, this is a biopic, and there was another biopic called Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. Um, which this reminded me of the conscientious objector. This one, actually, he does pick a gun up and he's a sharpshooter. And those scenes to me felt way too long. Like, I got it. I understood that he was the best shot out there. I didn't need it five times in a row. So, to me, this film was good. I really enjoyed the war scenes. Could have shaved off probably 15 minutes from the beginning. And like I said, those middle scenes. Great, he won the turkey. What are your guys' thoughts on it? <laughs> oh, man. I, I got to say, I, I never got into Gary Cooper. Anybody want to tell me why he's, you know, so beloved? I mean, come on. We need more people like Gary Cooper. We're the Gary Coopers of the, <laughs> the world. strong, silent type. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben knows what I'm talking about. You know, this is coming off of Pearl Harbor in December. 
This film came out in July. So we're so close to just the starting of the war for the US. And I think this became just such like a gung ho, you know, gather up the troops, get ready to go to war. And it really inspired so many Americans to kind of go and fight. Oh, Corporal. There's something that I'd like to know. Yes, sir. That night that you reported back to me at Camp Gordon, you as much as told me that you were quite prepared to die for your country, but not to kill. What made you decide to change your mind? Well, sir. Of course, if you'd rather not tell me, why, it's quite all right. Well, I'm as much again killing as ever, sir. But it was this way, Colonel. When I started out, I felt just like you said. But when I hear them machine guns are going and all them fellas are dropping around me, I figured that them guns was killing hundreds, maybe thousands. And there weren't nothing anybody could do but to stop them guns. And that's what I done. You mean to tell me that you did it to save lives? Yes, sir. That was why. Well, York, what you've just told me is the most extraordinary thing of all. So on one hand, it's like, yes, we, we did go and fight a really good war. But on the other hand, this is pretty paint by numbers already. It's like in the 40s already, early 40s still. And we're still just kind of hitting the same notes that we have seen from these biopics. But Gary Cooper is really what seals the deal. I mean, he really is committed to this performance. He's probably like the most famous actor at the time. And gosh, we just need more men like Gary Cooper. I can live with that. I can stomach that. And I should say, I do enjoy this movie. It was, in fact, one of the few films from 1941 that I'd already seen. And even though that was pushing 30 years ago, I remembered a lot of it. I was surprised how much I remembered. And I'll also agree, despite my lack of enthusiasm for the man, Cooper's really good here. In fact, I think he's the best thing about this movie. Oscar winner for this, which I don't know. I don't know if I would have given it to him, but I do agree. He sells this. I mean, this movie, I do agree with Spro is a little indulgent, but obviously it's trying to set up the kind of populist idea of this person, somebody who is adrift from morality and the church and comes back to it, wants to have a normal sort of life and is torn between the idea of country defending, fighting for country, or the principles that he has adopted and he's wrestling with. This kind of movie could be overwrought, and at times you get that kind of flourish to it that's a little overwrought, but I don't deny the earnestness of it, and I think it is because of Gary Cooper. Like, he really grounds something that is trying to kind of drift up into the heavens, like launch itself. But uh, Gary Cooper and his performance keeps it grounded. You believe his struggle and there's something really, you know, resounding by the end of it. It really is kind of one of those true to life heroic stories that we don't often get to embrace. And there's something very humble about it. And so, uh, yeah, more men like Gary Cooper. I totally agree. It is pretty incredible, the timing of everything. Uh, yeah. But it wasn't like they made the film knowing that we were going to war. You know, like the timing of everything coming out and Gary Cooper then, you know, leading the charge of pro-patriotism is crazy. Or did they? <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I think you could go out of your way and say that America knew that they were going to be in the war mm -hmm. even back in 1939. 
yeah, there's a lot of interesting things about Hollywood and World War II, both before leading up to it and during it. The government kind of just started gathering up all these Hollywood actors to try and help sell the war effort and whatnot. You know, Orson Welles goes down. He was like the ambassador of Latin America, you know, I think in 1942 or something like that. So it is interesting how times have changed so much. I just did a recording on Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was being filmed like apocryphally. The first day of production was Pearl Harbor or something like that, like where they took a prayer and held hands. It was a Walter Houston, James Cagney, all, all the, the cast members. And then they got to work and Michael Curtiz was like, now it's time to get to work and do something about it. In the 30s, and early 40s, there was an emphasis on this old school traditional patriotism because of what was lurking what was threatening why do i think it is funny because watching sergeant york you immediately knew that it was propaganda the message behind this is loud and clear to me but it wasn't necessarily for the audiences at that time i can't think of a 9-11 like in my time period it would be 9-11 right in all of our time periods it would be 9-11 the most patriotic film of that time i can't put my finger on it. No, you had a lot of anti-patriotic films like Fahrenheit 9-11, Two Brothers, Redacted, World Trade Center. That kind of gets into the patriotism, like where it's on the ground, focused on the people who were doing what's right. United 93 is a little more gritty than that, but like World Trade Center has the feeling of like a Hallmark movie, but there are not many. There are not many that are kind of celebratory in post 9-11. That's what I'm saying with like 60 years, it went from like Hollywood supporting the government and trying to recruit the people for the war efforts to now it's the opposite of that. Oh, yeah. There was an emphasis on the pointlessness of it, such as like Mendez, when he did Jarhead, going back to the original Kuwait war, was trying to be like, look, this is what happens when we engage with Iraq. It's nothing. It amounts to nothing. That that was the attitude. Obviously, Hollywood leaned heavy in the opposite direction of maybe it was a split country, but they leaned in the opposite, you know, the anti-Bush sentiment. I agree with that, but... 9-11 is the kind of event that should unify and instead it divided. And it's just an interesting uh, journey point in the comparison. All right. We have three films to go before we get down to our votes. Kyle has mentioned One Foot in Heaven, not necessarily needing to be on this list. Does anybody have anything good to say about One Foot in Heaven? I was surprised it wasn't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then we can move on to The Little Foxes. Well, then you did it. Looks like it might be, would it? Looks like it. Oh, don't pretend. You look like a cat that's been licking the cream. (laughs) Let's all have a drink to celebrate. Regina, I thought the children made a very handsome couple. Yes, Oscar, you said that before. Yes, sir, it's beginning to look as if the deal's all set. You remember, I told him down here we drank the last drink for toast. Yes, I never heard that before. Nobody ever heard it before. The Lord forgives those who invent what they need. I already had his signature, but we've all done business with men whose word over a glass is better than a bond. Anyway, it didn't uh, hurt to have both. Uh, You understand what Ben means? Yes, Oscar, I understand. I understood what it was happening. Did you, Regina? When he lifted his glass, I saw the bricks going into place. Did you? Well, I saw a lot more than that. I'm going to leave you and Oscar to count the bricks. I'm going to Chicago. Really, Regina? Yes, I'm going to live there. I'm going to take Alexandra with me. Now, give big parties for her and see that she meets the best people and the right young men, too. And later on, I'll take trips to New York and Paris and have what I want, everything I want. You shall come to Chicago to visit us. 
Not too awful, of course. And then, hmm? you won't have to learn to be subtle. You'll be very rich, and the rich can be as eccentric as they like. I love the little foxes. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, this is this is a good one. Betty Davis. I, I, those are the two words, right? <laughs> the exactly. two words. She's so good in this. I mean, it, it is a masterfully constructed sort of little narrative about this, you know, an early 1900s uh, Southern rich family and the conniving manipulation between everybody. And it showcases the riveting idea of dialogue between characters and how they are at odds with each other and are utilized that southern decorum to get around it it's how people present themselves and to hide their agendas i mean it's pretty great there's this set piece in the middle where it's horace and regina his wife as they argue over you know he's basically like i've set you up for failure i'm gonna take everything from you you're gonna receive nothing in the inheritance i've changed i'm changing my will and then he starts suffering a heart attack and she does nothing. <laughs> that scene just like, I will grip my pearls. Like it is so good because she sells her curdled morality so well. And this is a good example of how plays can re be really good foundation for interesting filmic work, creating those set pieces, having dynamic camera work and great performances in between. It's really good. Love Betty Davis and love William Wyler, so... I think he holds the record for directing nominations. I think it's 12. One of the best, and also in this movie, uh, cinematography by Greg Tolan. So yeah. everyone just pops up on all these movies. It's all just, it's very incestuous, you know, Hollywood, in terms of who gets used uh, for making the films. This was actually my family growing up. We did have the patriarch guy who was running the company who would, did not recognize the women in the family as female heirs. And then also just everything was controlled with money. So everything about this film, other than the Deep South, just rang completely true to me. I think they do a good job. They have the family is filled with reviled characters. But then you have, you know, at the expense of it, Alexandra. You know, it's kind of a coming of age amidst this corrupted, toxic world of wealth and upmanship. And I like that it preserves her sense because of like her Aunt Birdie and how she's been treated and because she's falling for an actual human being, you know, in love. It's love over wealth. And uh, so there's a lot going on here that I that, that you can grab onto. And how awful people could be because money is at the forefront of their mind. Yeah. And how evil they could be behind each other's backs. Yeah. Definitely. I, I'm surprised no one mentioned that Wyler was originally supposed to direct How Green Was My Valley, but was replaced by John Ford and went on to make this movie instead, which I think is better. Of all the movies that we watched, Regina was my favorite character, and Betty Davis gave what I thought was the best performance. Her frustration at being financially dependent upon men is entirely warranted, but as the story progresses, you see that she's not only a nasty, conniving person, but capable of evil. I haven't seen the TV show Succession, but I imagine somewhere in that cast of characters is the great-great-granddaughter of Regina Hubbard. Well, nominated for eight awards, it won none. I know. <laughs> Betty Davis maybe should have won. She's just not in it enough. Like Joan Fontaine is like in every minute of suspicion. But Betty Davis is ju just that just her reaction in that scene alone is Oscar worthy. <laughs> All right. We ready to talk about the Maltese Falcon? I'm always ready to talk about the Maltese Falcon. This is the classic of the classic film noirs, the MacGuffins of MacGuffins. It's an OG and it's a great film. 
Bogart is phenomenal in the lead role. The scripting and the story itself it has anything I think that you would want out of a mystery. And you're wondering, like, what's the significance behind this? Like, what is it they're really going for? And, you know, that's what makes movies great. It's just like keeping at the edge of your seat, you know, wondering, like, what is the next thing that's going to happen? What is the next shoe that's going to fall? It's just one of those classics. So it's really hard to, like, say anything bad. It's like a gold standard, which is like, well, why wouldn't that be like the best picture then? Which maybe some of you are or would pick that for the best picture. I think it's just. Sometimes it's nice where a really great movie isn't necessarily recognized as being, oh, well, this was the best of that year, but this is just like one of the solid ones that has ever come out of an era. Yeah, that's very well said, Ben. I I totally agree with you. This is like a really interesting film because it's obviously inspired the genre. Some credit it as like, you know, the essential DNA to make a film like this, a detective noir film. And it's an interesting when you go back and watch older films and especially films like the Maltese Falcon that have cemented this kind of structure, this kind of storytelling arc, and you compare it to what you've seen ever since. And I love the noir genre. I definitely haven't seen enough of these noir 40s films, but Maltese Falcon is that perfect example of kind of defining the genre. But it's interesting because I saw this film after seeing Chinatown and there is such a connection between those two films and and the way they kind of play out. It's almost like Chinatown's almost a remake in a way, just kind of trying to subvert the viewer's expectations. And I think when you watch films like that before going back and watching maybe an original where so much of the inspiration comes from, it kind of like skews your vision and it kind of makes it hard to appreciate it as much as you should. Obviously, I love this film. It's it's really beautiful. I think it's very comparable when you talk about the cinematography for how green was my valley compared to this like beautiful black and white cinematography that just shows the kind of seediness, the dark uh, shadows that are constantly looming around these characters. Like, who can you trust? Who's the villain? Who's the good guy? And I really love that aspect of this film. It just constantly keeps you guessing, like Ben said. But at the end of the day, it still delivers that classic gut punch and that same kind of gut punch that I got from Chinatown, which is another great noir film. This is Samuel Spade. Now, what can I do for you, Mr. Cairo? I'm trying to recover ornament that, uh, shall we see, has been mislaid. You're not hiring me to do any murders or burglaries, but simply to get it back. There's a girl wants to see you. Mr. Spade told me about your offer for the Falcon. After what happened to Floyd, I'm afraid to touch it except to turn it over to somebody else. What exactly did happen to Floyd? Have you any conception how much money can be got for that blackbird? I know the value in human life you people put on it. Hey, what's this bird, this falcon that everybody's all steamed up about? She didn't tell you what it did? You saw Joe this morning? Yeah. Why? Because I've got to keep in touch with all the loose ends of this dizzy affair if I'm ever going to make heads or tails of it. Be careful. If I do this and get away with it, you'll have something on me that you can use whenever you want to. And you deliver the falcon to me. What would you see to a quarter of a million? You aren't trying to strong on me, are you, Tom? It would pay you to play along with us a little, Spade. You got away with this and you got away with that, but you can't keep it up forever. The only chance I've got of catching them and tying them up and bringing them in is by staying as far away as possible from you and the police because you'd only gum up the works. You getting this all right, son, or am I going too fast for you? You may have the falcon, but we certainly have you. He tried to attack me. You, you filthy liar! Police will be here any minute, not talk. Oh, why do you accuse this? It's the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. What is it? They, uh, 
Stuff that dreams are made of. It cannot be understated the promise and the delivery of John Huston here, not only in the adaptation. This is an exquisite adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's novel. Obviously, it's not as uh, salacious as uh, they probably desired it to be because they could not reference a lot of the undercurrent relationships. Elisha Cook Jr.'s Wilmer and Peter Lorre's Joel Cairo, they're dating. It's insinuated. You get, get all the subtle hints that they are together, that they're in a homosexual relationship. That's why that's really a profound turn when Casper is willing to turn out Wilmer, who's a son to him. Joel is willing to turn out Wilmer because he's he's his lover. And I mean, the Maltese Falcon is, I mean, this is a noir before there was noir. That's not a term that would be uttered, I think, until the late 40s at its earliest. And so this is a defining movie. This defines a trajectory, a lighting technique, aesthetic technique, an idea of narrative and their choices and how that would be the kind of foundation of an incredible genre in its own right, an inventive genre in mood and in narrative and theme. This is one of the best. Uh, when I did a noir season, I sort of avoided it. I avoided this one and The Big Sleep because they are templates. And it's 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 daunting. It's daunting to take them on or utilize a two-hour episode to say something that maybe has not been said before. Because this one is talked about so much and it has sustained. It, it, this one is probably the most sustaining work of the year next to Citizen Kane. And it's because of what it did, who it introduced us to. It made Humphrey Bogart a star. It launched John Huston in a trajectory of being a filmmaker and one of the best that Hollywood ever produced. It is a standard of noir. Like It is practically a perfect detective film and it really still holds its weight. I love this movie. This is probably the most surprising one that you have not covered on your show. And I'm glad that you explained why. Because I was like, he did a noir season and he didn't do the Maltese Falcon. I don't under, I don't. I, I know. Don't, it's a shame. It's a, blot. It's a blot on the, on the record. <laughs> I did make the comment earlier in the episode that Bogart's character acting in High Sierra was my favorite of his performance of the year. Because with the Maltese Falcon, I didn't know how I'm supposed to feel about him. One, he's charming. He's a very charming fellow. And as the story slowly unfolds, you find out that, you know, he was sleeping with his partner's wife and everything. And you're like, well, where's this guy's morals? Like, where does he fall on my moral compass? Yeah. Where with High Sierra, I knew exactly who he was. And to watch him, be, like the gentlemanness in him start bleeding through at times really made his character in that one a whole lot more, to me, rounded than where he is in the Maltese Falcon. With the yeah. Maltese Falcon, pretty much his character is just figuring out everything, but he never necessarily falters. I never don't believe that he's going to figure this out or that the bad guy is one step ahead of him. I think about the scene where he raises raises a stink in the apartment or the hotel room and then he leaves out the hallway and laughs to himself and it's like yes it's that character all the way through where high sierra you never know where his character is going to land at the end whether he's going to go all the way as a bad guy or whether he's going to find the good guy within him and turn over a new leaf 
Spade is kind of a reflection of the disillusionment of his time. Like he's going to operate and practice what the world he sees and reflects. He's not going to try and make it better. He's just utilizing it to his advantage. And so that's a difficult protagonist to get behind. I totally agree with you. I will also agree. Peter Laurie steals the show. One of my favorites is when he comes to rob at gunpoint, uh, Sam Spade at his office or to look over his office. And then after he's taken his gun and slapped him around, he's like, can I have my gun back at the end? after they've had like an agreement and he gives him the gun and he pulls it back out. He's like, all right, now I'm going to search your place. Peter Laurie <laughs> is great. If I had to recast it like today's, it would be Adam Scott. I feel like them sure, both sure. Um, finding the character, finding the humor in the character, and then just finding like the, the weird nuances to make you remember that character when you leave the theater. Yeah. The title Maltese Falcon bugs me in a way because they don't necessarily talk about the Maltese Falcon until I want to say like 45 minutes into the movie. Mm -hmm. So as you sit down for the movie, you're kind of like, well, what's this whole Maltese Falcon business going on? Like, why is this movie called that? That probably didn't irritate anybody else, but that was kind of something that I just like clung on to was like, could there have been a better title for this film? That's what dreams are made of. (laughs) How could it be? I like the title. I think it's got a ring to it that's sort of aged like wine. I watched this one a long time ago when I was renting seven movies a week from Porter Library and conducting my own little cinema history course. I was really excited to revisit it because I remembered really liking it. But this time around, it did not satisfy me in the same way. And that's probably on me because rather than straight adaptations of Dashiell Hammett, I kind of prefer the homages. I really like Ryan Johnson's Brick or the Coen Brothers Miller's Crossing. I know that these are modern and far more modernized versions, but I think the spirit is there. And I think they're better stories, better scripts. I'm not saying Maltese is bad. It's just not one of my personal favorites of the year. People lose teeth talking like that. You want to hang around, you'll be polite. All right. So we talked about them all. What was not necessarily in your top three? It doesn't have to be. What was your favorite watch? I mean, I like How Green Was My Valley, so kind of any excuse to watch that, which sounds maybe a little too nerdy, but I I like that movie a lot, so (laughs) I have no issues rewatching that movie. I would probably say The Maltese Falcon because it's been one of those films that has been escaping me for the longest time. You told us to join us on this episode and I'm like, this is it. I really messed up by not watching it when we actually went through this and Unworthy and I need to do it now. It's time. So it was really great just to see. I love Bogart in general from everything that I've seen him in. And it was just great to see like him create this standard as someone mentioned. Like I, it really is this like beautiful example of noir and like why noir is so special and how we can use this formula and keep like manipulating it and tricking the viewer and constantly flipping it on its head. Rewatching Citizen Kane was just as thrilling as I remembered it. Rewatching How Green Was My Valley is it was exquisite. I will say I think the most surprising one was Little Foxes. I had never seen it before. And as a first watch, I think it really held my attention far more than I expected it to. And I found the performances to be quite riveting. So maybe I'd lean on answering that because I had no expectation going in and it it thrilled me uh, throughout. I'm also going to go with The Little Foxes. I had never seen it, and I had positioned it in my viewing list towards the end, but not quite at the end, and it was a massive list, and I didn't get to all of them. But I was still pretty worn out by the time I got around to The Little Foxes, and I felt reinvigorated, and I can't wait to watch it again. With every episode, we have to watch like 20 to 30 movies. Movie fatigue sometimes starts to set in, and you have to have palate cleansers and whatnot. 
I would say the most surprising that came out of nowhere was High Sierra. I really enjoyed the watch all the way through. For those that haven't seen it, there's a dog in it that is set up perfectly about being like an omen of bad luck. And the dog is always following everybody around. And the dog pays off at the end. <laughs> like everything about High Sierra to me grabbed me, interested me. But that doesn't mean any of these movies are going to make our list. We will start with everybody's third place. How I score it is first place is going to get three points. Second place is going to get two points. Third place is going to get one point. And then our top point getter will be who Spro and Lee take on the Academy gives it two. All right. I'll start it off with a darling little movie that made me laugh and warm my heart. My number three is Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Spro. For my third place, I'm going to put Citizen Kane. Kyle, third place. I did a top 10 list after I revisited a lot of these. I'm going to just stick with that list and I'm going to choose Maltese Falcon for number three. John. I went with Hitchcock's Suspicion. Okay. We really do think alike, John, because I also went with Suspicion. All right. Second place. My runner up is The Little Foxes. As Bro already said, each episode of Saltota is a goddamn undertaking. We watch a lot of movies, but the upside of that is that I usually get to find at least one little chestnut that I've missed. And for this episode, it's William Wyler's Foxes. Spro? I have the Maltese Falcon, Kyle. How Green Was My Valley would be my number two. John? I also have the Maltese Falcon. We did not talk about this before. <laughs> not at all. No, because I'm also going to Maltese Falcon number two. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then finally, number one. I'm going to be a predictable little bitch and give my number one slot to Citizen Kane. I just don't think there's anything else from this year that stands apart with such confidence. Spro? I kept How Green Was My Valley. Uh, would have to be Citizen Kane for me. How green was my valley? I have to Ooh. do it. John, what the hell? How green is my valley as well? <laughs> we didn't even write oh. this down anywhere. It's not mentioned. <laughs> no way. <laughs> literally did not speak about our list. Nope. Obviously, it was fate that you guys found each other to make a podcast yeah. with. I love you, John. I love it. I wish I love you too, Lee buddy. and I agreed on more things. We do not. And then sometimes we just <laughs> say, send each other angry texts as we're recording. Well, that's good. Honestly, I look back at our <laughs> episodes sometimes and I'm like, the episodes where Ben and I really don't agree sometimes can be the most fun. I it's get more of a fight and <laughs> yes, more unhinged and it becomes way crazier. But the episodes where we love, you know, we just end up recording way too long because we just want to gush about the movie for just hours. And also the movies that we hate <laughs> together, we just can't stop laughing at each other yes, about yes. it. Well, this is the first time in Spro and Lee history that we are not going to take an Oscar away. It comes out where How Green Was My Valley is our number one. Citizen Kane is a tight two, which I think is how history remembers probably everything that Citizen Kane was biting on the heels, if not worthy of taking the mantle. And then Maltese Falcon was our number three. But I think Man. we have a good list here of like, How Green Was My Valley, Citizen Kane, Meet John Doe, The Little Foxes, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Suspicion, and Maltese Falcon. If you're looking for a good run of 1941 movies. This is so different than our show. So it's been a fun time, like looking at the whole year. I think you guys really sold me. I missed out on The Little Foxes and Here Comes Mr. Jordan. And um, I need to jump on those, especially Here Comes Mr. Jordan. It's wonderful when you have a year like that where there are a multiple amount of films well deserving of the recognition. And so I'm not mad. 
Yeah. Well, as Spro always reminds me, it's not about your favorite choice, but a choice that you could stomach. And I can stomach Hal Green retaining the Best Picture Oscar. First time it's ever happened. Well, Spro and I want to thank you guys for joining us. We are well aware of the time and dedication required. In fact, I think I bitched about it the most. So we appreciate you guys taking it on. And of course, coming to the table with so many varied insights. We want to make sure our audience knows how to find you. So let's start with John and Ben and the Worthy Podcast. Yeah, we're on all streaming platforms. It's Worthy Podcasts with Ben and John, the Worthy Boys. And yeah, a little sneak peek. We're uh, working on some stuff behind the scenes. I'm going to do a live show in the future called Worthy Weekly on our YouTube channel, which is also Worthy Podcasts. So look forward to that. We'll probably be doing some uh, weekly live streams there. A live show? Are you nervous? I'd be nervous as shit. Yeah, it it is a little nerve wracking. I have like some experience in live streaming and the live kind of technical background. So I've always wanted to to kind of jump into it. Ben is like, no, I'm not on camera. I don't want to do that. And I totally (laughs) understand that. Like it's, I totally get that. It's definitely removing a a layer of privacy and comfort, but I love movies so much. And I have a large passion, obviously for going back and going through Worthy and going all the way back to 1927. But I love, you know, new films. And I love talking about all the new stuff that comes out. So yeah, look forward to that. It'll be weekly news coverage from us. And it'll be a great place to get your like weekly news, a quick hour kind of live stream. And just because I'm curious, what's your favorite Best Picture winner ever? Oh, boy. I want to pass that to you, Ben. I've been talking so much. Give me some time. Yeah. Well, for people who do listen to the podcast or know me personally, you know, it's Lord of the Rings is like the greatest movie franchise. Everything about those movies are my favorite. Some people find that very controversial. I I got into almost like a fist fight with somebody the other day about this. And like they were like... (laughs) No need to get into a fist fight over movies. I I know, but they, they were the aggressive ones i was just like i i I believe it (laughs) anyways lord of the rings is up there but oh man there are some movies i gave some really high scores so i love midnight cowboy which i kind of popped a little bit earlier i love schiller's list moonlight is a movie that in terms of modern times and all movies i think is just incredible i really love coda you know who doesn't love coda but lord of the rings is definitely up there so before we get to john i do believe that in afi's top 100 films lord of the rings was the only one from the 21st century because it's the truth it's the greatest movie <laughs> of the 21st century you heard it here folks well now when somebody puts their dukes up you could be like hey I, I love lord of the rings i'm there with you i think it's the greatest trilogy probably made but i don't think it's the best of the 21st century <laughs> i didn't say it was the best of the 20 it was the only one only one of, yeah only great film so- Sounds like the, past the best. Years Sounds the like the best. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like definitively the best. All right, John, get us off this topic. <laughs> okay. I knew Ben was going to say that and I knew it was going to lead to a lot more. So that's why I had to throw it to him to get some time here. So first I'll do the entire catalog, which I really love Moonlight. It's really amazing. But if I really have to pick my probably favorite, which is a, a weird one, I'm going to go with 2004's Million Dollar Baby. I love that movie so much. Uh, it really touched me ever, since I saw it as a kid. And I've rewatched that movie like eight times, 10 times probably now. Ben and I have both given perfect scores, but not for the same film. I gave 100 to 1960's The Apartment. I think it's a perfect film. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. And yeah, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. Kyle? Uh, I do love Million Dollar Baby, but 
I love Unforgiven more. I do love Milos Forman on One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. But man, this is difficult. You know, I think I'll go with also The Apartment just because I love Billy Wilder. He's one of my favorites of all time. And that is a really great example of why he's so good. I'm a sucker for The Silence of the Lambs. So it's incredible. I, yeah, you incredible. can't go wrong. And I love the fact that it won, you know, with the, yeah. the stodgy academy as it is. All right. Mr. Kyle Rule, how can our listeners find your show? Pretty easy, although it's a long title. I know movies and you don't with Kyle Brule. It is a joke. Obviously, it came from my friend. I was asking, how do I title my podcast? And he was like, you should just call it this because anybody who does a podcast, that's what essentially what they're saying. I have treated it as a journey for myself in genres, movies, uh, either utilizing it to watch movies I've never seen, revisiting movies that I didn't give a fair shake, or revisiting classics to see if they really hold up. Every season is 50 episodes. Choose a genre. Right now, we're finishing up Coming of Age. Next season, season nine, is uh, musicals, which has been uh, quite a journey for me, who has not necessarily been well-versed in the idea of musicals. Uh, And then season 10 will be one-on-ones. It'll be a guest-curated season. So that's what's coming on the horizon. And it's been a pleasure being part of this. And uh, I want to thank you, Spro. I want to thank Lee, you know, for having me and for coming on to my show. I really appreciated both of your your insights and, and contributions. And so this has given me like a positive outlook on like the connections of social media, because I was very apprehensive about going down that rabbit hole. But you guys have made it worthwhile. You know, it's been a worthwhile journey and a risk. And so I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've been trying to think of like the analogy that I came up with at the beginning, but like a better one. And I think if our audience, if they like the pond that we skip our stone over, these three gentlemen here, they fish in that pond. The information that you give about the movies that you guys cover is astronomical. And I'm I'm a bastard when it comes. I don't know how you guys are with your podcast listening, but I'm a bastard when it comes to listening to movie podcasts and worthy. I know movies and you don't. And we had a woman on by the name of Claire for Why the Flick are the only three movie podcasts that I will listen to. And you guys are amazing at what you do. And I look forward to listening, being a longtime listener for the future. Well, I appreciate but that. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, amazing. Over here. Yeah. I'm shedding a tear. <laughs> I just well, assume John's been downloading every episode just thousands of times. He's just slipping people a dollar on the subway yeah. being like, download an episode. No, I, 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 not to be like facetious. It's been a, a lot of fun to dive into the space and into the community. And I, I felt very similarly, just like, wow, everyone's very welcoming. I'm not a very big social media person and going out there, but yeah. it's, been, it's been an awesome community to be a part of. And uh, just the fact that somebody values my opinion is awesome but also a little funny to me and i appreciate it well all three of you and your opinions are always welcome here on saltota but until then i'm lee i'm spro i'm kyle i'm john i'm ben and we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red Sprout and Lee will return to relitigate the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress of 2020. In the meantime, check out our Instagram at TakeOnTheAcademy. Find us on Facebook. Send love notes to TakeOnTheAcademy at gmail.com. Review us on the podcast app you are streaming us from. And finally, thanks for listening. Really, thank you. If Lee and I were stranded on a desert island, I mean, you know, like, we would still do the... 
Does anybody listen to these? Like, are you still there? Have you not skipped forward to get onto your next podcast episode? Like, really? Write us if you do. I'm, I'm interested to know if you listen to these bumpers because I kind of feel like I'm talking to myself in a dark room here, bro. Like, hello? Hello? Okay. 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 See ya. See ya. See ya. Bye. Bye.